My mother used to come home. She said, Audrey, why do you talk so much? I told her I had a lot to say. And I was in second grade. I used to always be talking to people. And finally, my teacher gave me my own reading group. <laughs> to run. <laughs> yeah. So I had, I had four students. She had no problem with me. Mrs. Audrey Williams started teaching in 1971 in Hampton City Schools. You just heard about one of her earliest teaching experiences, leading a reading group of her peers in the second grade. Welcome to the Teachers in the Movement podcast. Teachers in the Movement is an oral history project that explores teachers' ideas and pedagogy inside and outside of the classroom during the Civil Rights Movement. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. Tune in and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. To watch the full interview, go to teachersinthemovement.com. I'm Dr. Mitchell Patterson, Assistant Professor of Secondary Social Studies in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction Literacy Studies at West Virginia University, and I'm a research member of the Teachers in the Movement project. And I'm Hunter Holt, a doctoral student here at the University of Virginia, working on the Teachers in the Movement project. Her name is Audrey Perry Williams. I was born in, back in the day, it was called Warwick County, Virginia, but later it annexed to, uh, into Newport News. I graduated from Carver High School, which is now Crittenden Middle School. Went to Norfolk State, Hampton University for my master's degree. When did you start teaching? 1971. I taught at the high school. History and government. When I first started teaching, I had two classes that I was the only black person. And this was in uh, 1981. And this was new for me because I had went to a segregated school segregated college. It was different, but we were taught we could cope. You had some students that would challenge you. I always remembered, you know, try to stay calm. And I only had one time that I had to actually have a student removed from my class. We were uh, supposed to have a test. And he said that, well, we have voted <laughs> The majority rules, and I said, yes, but I am the majority in this room. And he <laughs> says, well, you're the first majority I have ever met. I said, well, yeah, you remember that. And then he kept talking, and then he started talking about that I talk like a slave. And, you know, wow. he, just, he, he got very obnoxious. And even to the point that this isn't the class, that I'm the only black person in there, the other students said, man, why don't you just shut up? And he kept talking and talking and talking. So finally... I told him, I said, goodbye. And he said, where am I going? I said, I don't know, but you're getting out of here. Mm-hmm. And I went, I went to the office and I told him, I said, he cannot come in my room anymore. And so the, the principal said, well, we don't, we don't have anywhere for him to go. I said, well, I am truly sorry. He cannot come in my classroom anymore. Uh, you need to find somewhere for him to go. My contract does not say that I have to deal with that kind of issues. It says teacher of social studies. And so they, they took him out. But do you know that every day after that, he come to my room and said, hi, Miss Williams. But I told him, I said, he can't come in anymore. But I mean, even the kids said, man, why don't you shut up, you know? <laughs> so Dr. Mitchell Patterson, you were a middle school social studies teacher for 10 years. 
Did that story strike a chord with you? Absolutely. You know, I love teaching social studies, but I also, I was a student in Hampton City Schools and I knew that my teachers didn't play. I think in this particular story she's talking about, what do you do when, you know, you have a student that's not really responding and I'm not a type of person to kick students out of the classroom, but you do every now and then you do have to think about what about all the other students? If this is becoming particularly disruptive to where other students cannot learn, then they might need to be removed from the environment. And I've said that too. Hey, you can't come back until you're ready and you get this right. You can tell that the student really probably felt bad about it and would still say hi to Mrs. Williams and all of that. It was a lesson that she was teaching. Well, take me back a little bit to what was your schooling experience like in Newport News? I tell people all the time that we had an awesome educational system. Even though we attended segregated schools, our teachers ensured that we knew the information. They used to tell us that we had to know twice as much in order to be successful. We had chemistry classes with maybe one or two um, microscopes, but we still learned chemistry. We had books that were torn, that were came from the white schools, and they would have the N-word written in them. But we still learned despite all of that. And I think that they went above and beyond because they knew what we were going to have to endure when we went out in the world. I graduated from Culver, and then I went to Norfolk State, and then I got my master's from Hampton University. It was, it was fantastic. Uh, we learned teaching methods, psychology, how to deal with discipline problems, although I don't know if that would work today. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize how smart I was until I went in the work world. I mean, when I got there and I realized that these people are in charge of me, but they didn't know half as much as I knew. And, and I, I reflected back on my teacher saying, you will have to know twice as much. And so I had a fantastic education. I have no regrets about my HBCUs or my segregated schools. I really, I, I know we had it. Our teachers gave us so much of their time. We were a priority. It was like we were their children. Because like I said, they knew what we had to go through and what we would have to do. And so the only complaint I had was that um, if you did anything, they would call your mama. <laughs> and your mama corrected everything right quick. <laughs> but that was my only complaint. You know, we couldn't act up. We couldn't act up. Yeah. It wasn't good to you, but it was good for you, probably. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> Most definitely, yes. On the project, we've talked to so many teachers that attended segregated schools and then taught in integrated or predominantly white schools. Is Mrs. Williams' experience common? Yeah, I would say in the interviews that I've conducted, many of the teachers shared their experiences going to uh, black schools in which there was just a high standard of excellence. It was, you are going to be great. We are going to ensure that you get there. And then that same support was replicated in the HBCUs that they attended and in their teacher preparation program. So there's countless stories of teachers that have exceeded on all the state examinations that were certified, that had more training. 
well beyond their white counterparts. They're just good teachers. Well, I want to talk about your teaching practices in social studies. So did the issue of civil rights ever come up? But was it something you taught in your classes, and especially since you taught government? I don't, don't remember using the terms like civil rights per se, but we would talk about the Constitution. When they talk about equal rights, do we have equal rights? Is America truly a democracy? And I said no, because a true democracy is when you're concerned about all of the people. And we don't have one. We don't have a true democracy. I don't necessarily say we use the term civil rights, but we talked about how things were and how they should be and how we were treated. When I was working for the city of, of Hampton, I wrote two curriculums, and one of them was entitled Out of the Shadows. It talked about the hidden history of African Americans. So it sounds like equality and Black history, that was a big part of how you yes. were teaching. Yes. And I would love to get my hands on that curriculum if you still have it somewhere. I don't even know if, if they still have it because <laughs> I left in 82. But yeah, I wrote one on Out of the Shadows, and then I wrote a American history class because it is my premise that American history should be inclusive. You know, we should be teaching all together. Because not only do our children need to know, everybody needs to, this is the history of America. It's not Black history. It's not white history. It is American history. We built this country. We need to teach slavery. But in order to teach it, you got to train people. You got to teach people how to teach and not get your emotions there. What do you make of Mrs. Williams' call for more training on teaching about slavery in America? And what are the consequences of not giving teachers that support and training? We have to reckon with American enslavement. It's very important that they know the truth of what this country was founded on. And you do have to have the right support for students and teachers. I mean, every year there's someone that reenacts a slave auction This is horrible, and it causes harm to students. Have the conversation with reparations with students. Have what was lost, but you'd have to build a community. And you have to think about what's developmentally appropriate, right? Also for a particular age level. Having teachers trained, you know, they're doing great work out of teaching tolerance with the hard histories. There's NEH institutes where you can go in the summer. Um, There's all these ways that you can engage yourself, teaching yourself about it, looking at the curriculum and the standards and saying, okay, what's missing here? Whose stories are missing or erased here? How can we talk about this and ensure that students have these very nuanced understandings? And students can. They actually can have very high level conversations. I would put the documents in front of them. We would listen to excerpts of the slave narratives where people talking about their experiences. And then they start to see, oh, well, people have different experiences. And I would say that this is not just for slavery. This is for every period in American history, because what also tends to happen is Students will get a taste of American enslavement period and a taste of U.S. civil rights movement. And so it's as if black people in this country did not exist in any other time or capacity. Even when I would teach enslavement, I would talk about freed African-Americans and their experiences and people petitioning for their freedom and winning it. 
And they're like, whoa, how come I don't know this? And so this is this tapestry of these all these different people living these different types of lives within this century. Mrs. Williams is absolutely right. We have to put more focus on these periods so that our students are better for it because it's a generation that didn't get a very nuanced understanding and we're seeing the ramifications of that now. Well, you said you began teaching in 1971. So why did you choose teaching? Why the career switch? Well, I was working for the federal government, working as a freight specialist, but I always, I loved history. I always loved history. That has always been my passion. And I wanted to share that with, with students um, because I felt that we have to provide the knowledge that will encourage them to seek additional things. And I had some great teachers in school and I, I wanted to be like them. In Virginia, I don't know about anywhere else, but most of our teachers for our black children are white women. Is either 60 or 70% white women. That's not good for us. Our boys need to see some black people up there. Our girls need to see that. And, and I think that our education, we have a crisis. We have a crisis in education. The schools that are predominantly black, they don't have the same amount of money. And my sister taught in Portsmouth and they did a study in Portsmouth in years ago that the majority of people in uh, special ed were black boys yeah. because they don't know what to do with us. You know, we didn't have special ed. All of us were in the classroom together. We were all in the same classroom and we helped each other. That communal learning. Mm-hmm. When we went to integration, we lost. I mean, that's my opinion. <laughs> because I, I know, you know, our students didn't, don't graduate with what we, we graduated with. What should we make of that statement? What might Black students and the Black community have lost when de jure integration happened? The, I mean, this is something that I think in the Black community has said a lot. I heard this from my family growing up. Now, while maybe some of the conditions definitely weren't as equitable, you had that community. Black teachers, Black principals, Black counselors. Um, a recent interview I did where they said once integration happened, Black principals ended up counting books for the central office. So then what they might do, are they going to wait to be a principal again or they might just go into another profession? And in many ways, schools are still segregated now. But as Mrs. William pointed out, we lost black teachers. We lost so many black teachers as a result of this. And that was a tremendous loss for all students. As a teacher, every year, my first question is, am I your first black teacher? And so many students in the 10 years I taught in middle school say, yes, you are. So that means they've gone through at middle school level five years without a black teacher. And then I'll even say, or a teacher of color. And they said, no, you are first. And I used to think, well, you know, I'm really important for my black students. But as I began teaching, I said, oh, social justice for everybody. It's really important for my white students to see a black teacher. So I think um, this is opinion that's widely held. And it's true that we did lose something. And we've been trying to get that back. There, there is no equality for black people. 
if you're fortunate enough to get a job, I mean, do okay, then it's fine. But you think about those people that don't, those minimum wage people who are working, they don't have health care. I want to pause again here as Mrs. Williams brings up class and economic justice for African-Americans a few times. How common is it for the teachers you talk to to bring up class differences? We often hear it when teachers are telling their backstory. Oh, I grew up in a farm. I grew up in this rural area. Oh, well, we didn't have much. Or my parents were teachers and I knew that I would be going on to college and I wanted to be just like them. They come from all different backgrounds. I think it's important that we do have that class conversation. You know, when you're in the black middle class, I like to call it kind of hood adjacent. Like you're in the same community, you know, you're you're going to the same stores, you're 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 right there. And so I think that work in their role as a teacher was also community work to ensure that their students were fed, that they had rides to come to class or to a college trip so that they could be exposed to things outside of maybe where they are. It's a community-based learning. You're a teacher, goes to your church, and they were taking students into local businesses. Local business members were coming into the classroom. And how powerful is that? And I think that was more prevalent because they had to survive. You had to stick together. And I think that there are schools and teachers that try to make those connections. But back then, back in the day, as they say, I think it was just happening. I think now we have to be intentional about it. not to say it's not happening. You know, you have this, people focused on standards, teaching to the test, is all of these other things that have taken priority. And um, Mrs. Williams speaks to that in her interview as it switched to becoming about the standards and the SOLs and how that turned her off from the style of teaching that she was used to doing, which was very community-based. I mean, I'm in a battle with the state of Virginia about those SOLs. We were kind of trying to find people who had local primary and secondary sources on African-American history in different areas. You know, I had rounded up people all over we have a later enforcement that has been after the state to teach the underground railroad sites that are enforcement. Project 1619 with the arrival of the first enslaved kidnapped Africans, that's not in the SOLs. They still talk about Jamestown. There is so much history in Virginia that should be in those SOLs. You know, and then when teachers teach things that are not in SOLs, then they get reprimand. And I think one of the problems with teaching now is that we are not educating students. We're not teaching them to be problem solvers and things like that. We're teaching them to pass a test. One of our teachers said she got in trouble because she was teaching, she was teaching the Harlem Renaissance and it wasn't in the SOL. I don't see too much where we're asking them to think to think outside the box, give them some questions to answer and come up with conclusions. I have been, for the last year, two years, I don't get a response, but I've sent letters to the State Department and the governor. And then when the governor appointed the new commission that's supposed to be looking at African-American history, I'm trying, but <laughs> I can't guarantee that we're going to get any results. 
thank you for your fight because that's something I know as a teacher I was rallying against as well. Because yeah, you're right. Students need that time to problem solve, think critically about the yes. world, be prepared yes. for the world they're going to be in. Well, we're going to keep on fighting. And that's a good kind of segue into your activism, which is something that you do. Like what organizations and activism that you're a part of or have been a part of that have influenced you, your work in the community? I've always been an advocate for teaching our history. I go around to schools, community centers, anywhere where people want to learn uh, and talk about it. This has been going on for years. And then when I retired, I went to work for um, Jamestown, Yorktown Foundation. Uh, and I would be there, the only uh, instructor telling what, you know, the correct <laughs> information. And then with Asala, uh, I'm the president of our branch in Hampton. And we are out there daily telling the story, trying to get more information. And I tell people all the time that if I had money, I'd be dangerous because I'd open my own school. up here telling people what they need to hear. We have adopted a little preschool of four-year-olds, our branch, and we've been teaching them Black history because I said they're never too young to learn. But you'd be surprised at our people that don't want to hear about it. And, I, and they tell me, well, that's in the past. I don't want to talk about slavery. But I tell them you have to, because you have to talk about slavery in order to understand what's going on today. You have to know your past. And I say, you just think about 401 years almost here, and we're still here, despite all of the atrocities of slavery. Everything they have done to us, we're still here. And that's a testimony that everybody needs to know. But but a lot of black people, I don't want to hear that. Do you agree with her that some African-Americans are reluctant to learn about slavery? And why might that be? I can understand why there are some people that are reluctant. It's not that there's this, oh, I don't want to know this history. Imagine hearing when you hear about the first time you hear about your existence, your people, your tribe, is that you weren't even considered a person. I would, a lot of people don't want to hear that. And I think a lot of teachers have caused harm in the ways they did teach it. So maybe there was an interest, but then you're asking me as maybe one of few black students to participate in a slave auction and be the slave. Or whenever slavery comes up and all the heads turn to look at the black student in the class, there is an anxiety for many students when this particular topic comes up because of how it's been taught historically. But then Ms. Williams, she wanted to teach it as acts of resistance and resilience, like instilling kind of that ancestral pride. Like you have a responsibility to continue to go forth and be great because there's greatness in you if they were able to survive that. We have to tell it. You know, we have to tell our story because they're not going to tell it. And if they tell it, it's not going to be done accurately, you know? So, and I, that's my concern. And that was why, like I said, I still go out and talk to people. And if anybody wants me to talk to them, or ask me any question, I'm always there to answer whatever and try to provide that for them because I think it's important. I am proud to be an African-American. I have no shame about my history. I, because I think that we 
the fact that we are still here, I don't care what anybody said. That's a testimony. Our ancestors, it's just amazing. I, I do uh, ancestry, and I got a hit the other day that one of my ancestors fought in the Civil War, but he was white. And I said, I laughed, and I said, uh-oh. And I also, <laughs> I also got a hit that we've got my paternal grandmother. Her ancestor came from Butte, Scotland, to Surrey in the 1600s. Well, I'm getting stuff from them now. They sent me a copy of a will, and the will says, I leave my little Negro girl to my wife. We're all mixed up. <laughs> oh, yeah. My father died when I was 18. He died of a massive heart attack. And so I started Ancestry because I didn't know too much about him. Yeah. And his family, like my aunts and I, never talked about it. So I wanted to know more about that side, because my mom's side, they can, they can take you all the way back to the slave cemetery in North Carolina. Quite a few teachers that we talk to do their own historical genealogical research. In what ways is genealogical research especially important, radical, or sacred to Black Americans who descend from people who were enslaved? When I was teaching, a student said, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Hampton, Virginia. No, but where are like your people from? Like, and I said, you know, that's something I will probably never know because my family was enslaved. And that's one of the things that they take from you. So I might not ever know the true history of where my family is from. Even with all the technology, Ancestry.com, it changes all the time. And literally students started crying. They said, wow. I said, that's how deep it is. I'm generations later and I might not even even never find out my lineage. I'm trying to get uh, Henry Louis Gates to come do me, but you know, he only do famous people. But <laughs> I want him to uh, help me out here. So many of us don't get to really know our history. And for our elders, it's so painful. It's so painful to share what life was like for them. So they don't necessarily pass down a lot of stories. And people that have been enslaved, if you find something, it might just be a first name, Sarah. And you don't even know if that's your relative or not. It becomes quite the challenge. So it, and in fact, it, it really is radical. Another thing I'll add is that often you can't get back that far unless you connect to a white ancestor. Think about that. So I think there's power in knowing who you are and where you come from and just seeking that knowledge. But it's also quite disheartening. I mean, that's the kind of reality that comes with engaging in this particular kind of work. The while worthwhile and you want to do it. It's filled with many hardships and heartache. What do you think teachers and students should know about Black history and about the movement? I think what they need to know is that we built this country, that we did not come willingly. We were kidnapped and we were forced, we were enslaved, and we still, even today, there is nothing equal for us. I mean, and my son is 56 years old, and I still worry about him. And I always tell him when he was growing up, I said, if the police stop, call your mama or your daddy, but don't say nothing. I I'm just excited about what's going on today. With this new movement that's going on today, when you see those young whites, Hispanics, and people all over the world out there, 
they are really seeing it for the first time. I mean, because like I said, my granddaughter is 29 years old. She never, she knew what I told her, but they're actually seeing it. I tell, I, I tell people all the time, I say, you know, I'm sorry that there's violence, but I am really happy that it's out there. And I think it's time. The 13th Amendment said we were free, but then they put us in prison for lottering, and then they released us out. Everybody's actually seeing what we have been seeing for 401 years. I'm Dr. Tiffany Mitchell-Patterson, and I'm joined today by Hunter Holt. This has been Teachers in the Movement. For more information and to view the video interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is produced by Mary Garner McGee, and our theme music is Summer Night by Vanilla. You can find their music at vanillabeats.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening.